Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome to the New Books in Medicine podcast, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur, and today we will be talking to Dr. Eric Topol about his new book, Deep Medicine, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. Eric, thank you for joining us on the show today. Great to be with you, Jeremy. Can you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a cardiologist. Uh, I run the Scripps Research Translational Institute. It's that's part of Scripps Research uh, here in La Jolla, California. Uh, I've been here about 12 and a half years, uh, and uh, it's the greatest um, because I get to do some innovative things with a remarkable team of over 100 people cu- uh, cutting across lots of different disciplines. Uh, so it, it's a fantastic place to be, and it helped to be the inspiration uh, for the Deep Medicine book. So can you dig into that a little bit more? What actually inspired you to write Deep Medicine? You know, as as you know, Jeremy, I've been uh, working in the digital medical sphere for uh, well over a dozen years, and uh, it was clear that we were accumulating lots of data, but most of it was sitting in storage. Not anything meaningful was coming from it, and it was clear also that we were starting to see AI uh, warm up in other sectors, whether it's with cars or with um, you know other industries, but not so much in healthcare. So about three and a half years ago, I decided I was going to get into this space, learn about it, you know, speak and hang out with a bunch of the AI gurus because I'm not a computer scientist and see where it would take us, you know, where it could take us. And that's really what led to the book. um, Because when I went into it, I really didn't know where I was headed. just that I thought it was going to be a great way to analyze data. Uh, I learned that it could do far more than that. Can you explain artificial intelligence for our listeners that might not know a lot about it? Uh, And also, what exactly is deep medicine? Yeah, well, uh, firstly, artificial intelligence has been around for many decades. Um, That's nothing new, really. Uh, The idea that you could get a machine uh, with software to 
have to be intelligent, a very kind of reductionist definition. In the last decade, um, the subtype of artificial intelligence called deep learning became validated largely through the work of Jeffrey Hinton, uh, Jan Lacoon, uh, Yashua Bengio from University of Toronto, who were just awarded, by the way, the Turing Prize, which is the number one prize in all of computer science. And basically a deep uh, neural net, deep learning, is taking um, image or speech or text, taking data sets, putting it through layers of artificial neurons that are uh, dictated by the complexity of the data, and then coming up with an output. So what that has done is enabled uh, amazing processing at human or superhuman levels of uh, performance, accuracy and speed that are quite remarkable. And so that's what deep learning is. It's this really exciting form of AI. Without it, we couldn't really be talking about deep medicine. And when I mean deep medicine, I'm talking about having a lot of data about each person, big data per individual, all the different layers, you know, biology, physiology, anatomy, environment, you know, all these different layers of data and using deep learning to then get to a state of decompressing doctors' roles, making it more accurate, performance much better and efficient, productivity. So decompressing the, the, the mundane tasks, the outsourcing of things for doctors, and also empowering patients at the same time so that they can uh, generate their data, have algorithms to support them. So then you start to get to deep empathy, which is the essence of deep medicine, as I call it. And that's the ability to have time, the gift of time, so that the patient-doctor relationship can be restored because it's it's eroded so se- severely over the decades since uh, I finished medical school. So what is what you call shallow medicine and how does it differ from deep medicine? Yeah, well, that's the, what we got right now, unfortunately. Insufficient time insufficient context, insufficient presence, uh, and uh, insufficient everything. I mean, it's really, we have 12 million errors a year. We have seven minutes for return appointments, 12 minutes on average for uh, a a new patient. Uh, Doctors and clinicians are getting squeezed. We have burnout at uh, unprecedented levels. 20% of doctors have clinical depression. Uh, burnout causes a doubling of errors. We have profound waste and all sorts of unnecessary testing because it's easier to order a test than it is to actually have time with patients and really try to delve into the problem. We don't have real listening. We don't even have really high quality physical exams because we don't have time. So shallow medicine is just error laden and it's the degradation of the human bond the precious presence that would occur if we let doctors be what they want to be, which is caring for patients. So shallow medicine as it exists today is largely a healthcare without the care. What percentage of the, the healthcare delivered to the United States out there today is shallow medicine? Is it all shallow medicine? Is the majority of it? Are there some beacons of hope that are doing 
you know, kind of what you talk about in the book? Well, as you know, Jeremy, I start out the book by telling the story of my knee replacement, which is an exemplar of shallow medicine. Insufficient data by the surgeon in planning my post-operative course therapy. Uh, and um, the idea that, you know, when I went in with a horrible situation, I was told that I needed to take antidepressants. You know, I should see my internist. That's a robotic response. That's not a human response from a highly educated uh, physician. That's shallow medicine because it takes too much time to listen to somebody's problems. And it's a lot easier to prescribe pain medicines which no no wonder we have such an opiate opiate epidemic. So, no, in answer to your question, I can't quantify it. I just know it's pervasive. I've experienced it, my family members, my friends, and so many patients who I get to see who have already been seen by another cardiologist or physician. I can tell that that's been part of the problem. And I go through some of those cases in the book to also show other examples. If AI and technology are used more in medicine, uh, I think one of the concerns a lot of people have, and maybe people that don't necessarily understand AI that much, um, they have the concern that there will be a even less personalized and feel, a human feeling in their interactions with doctors. And you know, what about jobs? Will a lot of the jobs in healthcare no longer be needed? Can you talk about a little bit about kind of the summon or common concerns you hear about this? Yeah, I think that um, when you have seven minutes with a patient and we know that if you if, if a doctor doesn't have the diagnosis in mind in the first five minutes from system one thinking, which is, you know, the uh, Danny Kahneman's thinking fast and slow. If it, if it isn't in the mind, doesn't come to the you know reflexive in the first five minutes, then there is a 70 odd percent error rate in making the diagnosis. So if you only have seven minutes with a patient and you're pecking on a keyboard because the role of clinicians have become data clerks. And this is the biggest explanation for why there's such, you know, terrific, horrendous burnout. And by the way, you know, Abraham Verghese, who I regard as the number one medical humanist of our era, he wrote the foreword for the book and he and I are completely aligned on this issue about explaining why there is such profound disenchantment. And it doesn't take much to be in touch with that throughout the medical community. I, I actually saw him speak at a conference and it was a very powerful experience. Um, how can AI be utilized to help with medical diagnoses? Well, uh, that's the easy part. Um, I mean, relatively easy compared with uh, restoring humanity of healthcare. But what we have seen now with deep learning is taking images, whether it be, you know, any type of medical scan, uh, if, if you want to put in uh, speech so you can get a beautiful note so you don't have to peck on a keyboard, liberation from keyboard. Uh, or you want to have machine vision during, let's say, colonoscopy so you don't miss polyps. So all these ways to take what is commonly um, interpreted patterns, 
whether it be radiologists or pathologists for slides or gastroenterologists or cardiologists, every single specialty, every single walk of life in medicine and have performance improved, accuracy far better. I mean, a perfect example, Jeremy, is radiologists. They have an overall 32% rate of false negatives, missing things like a pulmonary nodule that could be cancerous on a chest x-ray or many other things that are missed because uh, the speed with which a radiologist has to go through 50 to 100 cases a day of, of film, many of them having innumerable uh, subfiles. So what this is all about is, you know, outsourcing to machines and we can train machines to have remarkable accuracy. And then it's overreading by physicians um, and clinicians, and that just makes life easier. So that's that's where all this is headed. And there's already some great examples in ophthalmology, dermatology, radiology, you know, many convincing, compelling examples. You, you, you just mentioned it, but one of the big catchphrases people hear when AI is discussed is deep learning. What exactly is that? And, and can you talk a little bit more about how it works? Yeah, well, I mentioned that that's a subtype of AI, and it's the one subtype which is really about uh, using layers of artificial neurons where as an image or text or speech goes through these layers, it just keeps getting, the features getting more and more and more defined until you get the output. So this is, uh, as it turns out, an extraordinary type of AI because it is, it is the one form of AI that's now been shown to get this level of performance that is exceeding expert humans. Uh, and so it's, it's a neural network, and it's basically, you know, it could be thousands of layers. It's just dependent on how, what kind of data you're putting in. And unlike humans, um, it has insatiable appetite for data. The more you put in with these ground truths when you're training uh, a deep neural net. So let's say you're going to train on uh, chest x-ray. Well, you want to put in a million chest x-rays that have been interpreted by experts with consensus. So it's not just one expert. It's, it's a real consensus. It's a so-called ground truth. And most of what we have in AI is this form of supervised learning. We're not just putting in films and asking the neural net to interpret it. We're training based on the uh, a large, you know, at scale experience of these so-called ground truths. And these basically then can you, you let loose the neural net once you've trained it and validated it, and then you can show that it can do this exceptionally well, better than humans. And it's basically embedding the expertise of a large number of humans uh, into an algorithm. And that's what's really quite extraordinary. What are some of the biggest concerns related to AI and your thoughts around them? Can you talk about jobs and even like the concept of driverless cars? Uh, for example, uh, you know, people get in car accidents all the time, but the, 
when driverless cars get into an accident, it's a big deal um, because it, you know it's a new thing. People don't have it happen as much. That's going to be the same thing when AI fails to diagnose something that you know, human error people are used to. But when AI makes a mistake, is that going to be enough to get concern around um, the AI made an error? It's not perfect. We need that that human intervention there. It's not perfect yet. I mean, kind of what I, I'm probably not explaining this the right way, but I think you know what, what I'm getting at. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? And then on the other extreme, the future of AI, what about and, and you do mention this in your book, but what about killer robots and, and things like that? Yeah, well, as you know, uh, in the book, there's a chapter called Deep Liabilities. And I get into all these points that you're touching on. They include the methodology of the uh, algorithm development and the ethics and the inequities that we could make worse, which are already a big problem, particularly in the U.S. Uh, and um the existential threats, the jobs, uh, um, you know, the black box, lack of explainability, the privacy, security. There are no shortage of liabilities here. I think we can agree upon that. But they, they actually, n- none of those worry me the most. And that includes the bias, the human bias that goes into the deep learning uh, uh, nets as they get developed. But the, what bothers me the most is the missed opportunity here. And that is bringing back the humanity, humaneness in medicine. Because we there are all these things that you're mentioning, and I just reviewed, there is a solution for them. But the one thing that's the hardest nut to crack is the gift of time to give that back to the patient-doctor relationship, to restore trust, presence, the precious human bond. And in the default mode, which is to squeeze clinicians as much as we can, which is what we live in now, and we suffer from that, the default mode will make this thing worse. So in order for us to derive the real benefits of AI, it means standing up and being activists. All of us in the medical community, all of us in patients, we need to train administrators more than the machines. To make this happen. What is what you call augmented individualized medical support and what are some of the ways that it can affect different specialties? Well, that's the, the, the patient side of the story. And that is once you have data that's uh, obviously it's digitized and it's now inputs, all your inputs being used through a deep learning algorithm and other means of AI, like natural language processing, it's going through this neural net to then give you feedback. And we're talking about multimodal data input. So, for example, the mode of your sensors, the mode of all your electronic records, the mode of your genomic or your gut microbiome analysis, or all these different, your environmental sensors, all these different data inputs are now through your smartphone, is through an avatar, through just texting or through uh, audio, is giving you feedback about your health. And that's really extraordinary because now we have for specific conditions, let's say diabetes or high blood pressure or 
you name the condition, we have a way to get uh, an auto loop of feedback to each individual. Uh, eventually, as I wrote in the book, we'll have there's a chapter called the virtual medical assistant, and that'll promote overall health. And the dream, of course, is something we've never actualized, is true prevention on an individualized basis, because the algorithm will be processing all your data, knows what your risks are, and tries to prevent the condition, let's say asthma, or let's say progression to diabetes, or heart disease, or whatever it is. It's using your data and the known corpus of the medical literature and all the things that are happening in your life to try to prevent what otherwise would occur and, you know, change the natural history in you. That's really exciting. That's a longer term story, but we're already seeing in specific conditions like diabetes uh, that this is occurring. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Can you dig into that a little bit more on how patients' daily lives will be affected in terms of things like managing their diet or even asking questions about about different health concerns to a patient's smartphone? Yeah, well, you know, the, the diet one is a chapter I devoted to that because it is so extraordinary. I mean, people really want to know how they can make what they eat promote their health. I mean, that's something would be, wouldn't it be nice if we had our diet that replaced uh, the need for medications, prevent, help prevent illnesses that we otherwise would be uh, at risk for developing. So what's amazing about this, Jeremy, is that a group in Israel led by Aaron Siegel at the Wiseman Institute, uh, a few years ago, they published they cracked the case about individualized diet. They used the glucose sensor as the endpoint. They showed that if we all ate the exact same thing, the exact same amount, the exact same time, our resultant glucose in our blood through the sensor would be all over the map. And when you start collecting all your data, as I, as I did in this experiment, and that includes you know your sleep, your physical activity, your, everything you eat and drink, your medications, uh, all time-stamped, and uh, your glucose sensor and your gut microbiome analysis. It's only through analyzing all this data do we understand that there is true individual response to food and that you can get food that would, in you, prevent a glucose spike. Now, we don't know whether that alone is 
the end all because we don't even know if that prevents progression of diabetes. It, intuitively, maybe, but we don't know if you ablate these glucose spikes by following the food recommendation for you, whether that really works. But now the same thing has been shown for triglycerides with machine learning. So this individual response to what we eat um, and guiding the best foods for each individual, rather than these guidelines, pyramids that are just based on the simplistic notion that all of us should be eating the same food, that everyone should be on a, a, a ketone diet or a paleo diet or whatever diet, is is really wrong. And I think uh, to try to discover that through trial and error, rather than through uh, AI, um, you know, the latter is where we're headed. So that's diet, but it, it, it cuts through, you know, for supporting um, the avoidance of depression or better managing depression with all these objective measures like voice, um, which is rich with uh, data about one state of mind, your respiratory pattern. Um, there's so many features, how you, how you type on your smartphone keyboard or a computer keyboard. And on and on about all these objective features, how you can get to a, a state of person's mind, their mood, and that can help in monitoring uh, mental health and uh, whether that's to avoid depression or have better management of someone who has um, been manifesting depression. So there's all sorts of things you can do when you can process data in a meaningful way, accurately, quickly you know, when it's validated. Um, so, you know, the opportunities are seemingly limitless. What are some of the other ways that AI has and couldn't have an impact on mental health? And, and, and if so, how? Well, besides, yeah, besides these objective measures that I just touched on, there's, there's a lot more, you know, facial recognition, vital signs, you know, there, there's a lot there, at, you know, how much physical activity and how much communication you engage in. But the other big part of the story for mental health is the recognition that people would rather talk to an avatar with their innermost secrets over a human being that is a counselor or a psychologist, psychiatrist, a mental health professional. Now, that's rich because we can make a lot more avatars that are interactive than we have as a supply of trained mental health professionals. In fact, the mismatch is, you know, really out of kilter. So when we learn that, and it's been confirmed by other studies, and it wasn't anticipated, now we can build um, these modes of supporting people by having the uh, unbridled communication uh, to an avatar. Again, all this assumes that we've got this privacy and security issue uh, fully on track, uh, guarded uh, for the benefit of the individual. But th that goes to show that you can do so much without the human support and can be done inexpensively, effectively. And in preliminary data from small randomized studies, even with a chatbot, which is a primitive form of this, um, using text, not really with an interactive avatar, 
but it, you know, it's encouraged. We have a lot more to do. And everything we're talking about is what I would call in the early stages. It still requires mostly prospective studies and rigorous trials. They're, they're getting done now in many aspects, including mental health, but a lot of them are still pending. Let's shift back a bit to talking about how AI can assist doctors. Uh, can you talk about how it can assist them in assessing things like skin cancer and how accurate and reliable is that? Well, the skin cancer has been now not just replicated, but uh, triplicated. You know, there's three big studies. Uh, they're all retrospective, which is a limitation. They need to go prospective, meaning in a real clinical environment, rather than in, in big data sets where they have ground truth. Uh, and so melanoma has been the main target, although it's extended to basal cell carcinoma um, and other skin cancers. But basically, uh, whether it was the Stanford study with 21 Stanford board-certified dermatologists or the European study of 58 experienced dermatologists or yet another third study, all of them have shown that if you have a, a, a high-quality picture of a skin uh, lesion, question cancer, you can accurately diagnose it as well by an algorithm, if not better, than by dermatologists. Now, why is that important? Well, obviously, you want to catch these skin cancers uh, accurately, not with false alarms. And we don't have enough dermatologists. And a lot of primary care doctors um, are uh, not going to be able to diagnose this as, as, as accurately as we'd like. Plus, you know, why not people have self-diagnosis through their phone? That's where this is headed, is you can take high-quality pictures through your phone, get an algorithm to tell you that this is suspicious or not to worry uh, with, you know, accurate results. We haven't seen that yet. We're not there, but it's, those are being developed right now. What role does artificial intelligence have in medical research? Could it help to do things like discover new drugs? Can machine learning and artificial intelligence outperform humans in this area? Well, again, there's a chapter it's called Deep Discovery, and I get into all the things in science, in life science. Drug discovery is one part, every aspect of drug discovery, whether it's mining, all the data that's out there, whether it's, um, you know, looking at uh, prediction of dose or combinations or uh, side effects so you don't have to do preclinical testing with animals, and all sorts of things, simulations. but. The biggest thing to me is uh, what we've seen in life science. So upending the microscope. So you don't have to use stains where we know when you use fluorescence, you actually damage the cells. and That in itself uh, affects the interpretation. Or hematoxylin and eosin, H&E preps. You don't have to do that because you can train looking at slides without any stains to have accurate interpretations through algorithms. And then there's rare cells that, you know, we couldn't find them and diagnose them at scale accurately. And now we have ghost cytometry, which is, you know, AI. 
cancer biology, genomics, neuroscience, every one of these fields has been markedly facilitated by being able to process massive data sets uh, and substitute for the routine things that occur. And so it's an across-the-board thing. And the science side, the discovery side, it's moving much faster because it doesn't require you know, regulatory approvals by FDA or prospective trials. I mean, these are really compelling um, evidence that we have new ways of doing things. How can AI have an effect on medicine at the health system level? Well, <laughs> got a chapter on that too. Um, there, it's really uh, fascinating because there's many different types of AI use at a health system level. One of them is for prediction. And uh, prediction is, in my view, kind of a soft spot for AI right now because it's trying to predict everything. Like uh, if you're in the hospital, whether you're going to die and whether you're going to have a short stay, long stay, readmission, and then all the other things like Alzheimer's, sepsis, and just survival overall. Uh, if you look at all the data, it's all over the map. And um, I tell a story about my father-in-law who basically any algorithm would have said he was dead or just about, you know, dead. And that's why he was set up to be taken to our home to die. And in the morning that he was to do that, he, he woke up. He was resurrected. So uh, we have issues with using algorithms, but health systems are going to start relying on these more to know where to put their resources to avoid readmissions, for example. And they're already starting to be used in certain health systems. Of course, health systems will benefit by the higher productivity and workflow. But one of the big things is machine vision. Uh, Fei-Fei Li and Arnie Milstein uh, in Stanford, Palo Alto, working with Intermountain Health in Salt Lake, have shown uh, recently um, how machine vision can be so helpful, for example, in the intensive care unit, to tell whether or not a patient is about to pull their endotracheal tube out before it comes out so that it's much safer environment to be able to predict falls in patients you know, who are in the hospital uh, who, by machine vision, it's predicted that they're getting wobbly and things that would have been missed by nurses and other personnel. Uh, hand washing is another example using machine vision of healthcare personnel, surgeons in the hospital setting to know that it's not been adequate, it's not by protocol. So wherever you look in a hospital, there's, there's ways to improve safety, to decrease reliance on, uh, on human resources, um, and you know, make things less costly as well. So a lot of promise at the health system level. We touched on this earlier, um, and, and it's ultimately in the title of your book, but how can artificial intelligence bring empathy and human interaction back into healthcare uh, to, both prov- uh, to, bo- to improve both provider and patient satisfaction? Well, there's the two big impacts. One is at the doctor-clinician level 
which is outsourcing so much that's done today by that individual, be it data clerk functions or trying to review, get their arms around a big mass of chart data, electronic and or paper. So that decompression is one big part of this. Uh, the other is the patients taking on more charge because they are generating their data and they have algorithmic support. And ideally, they own all their data because the more of those inputs that are theirs is going to help the algorithm for the best possible output. Anyway, when you have both of these clicking, you then can get to deep medicine because you have the gift of time. You have the true presence, the true uh, listening to a patient, their story. Every one of those stories are individualized. You reestablish the trust, the sense that a person is being cared and looked after. You restore the mission of why people went into healthcare in the first place, which was to do that rather than to be kicked pecking at a keyboard and, and burdened with all sorts of administrative stuff where voice notes, that is conversation, can engender a note far better than what is an epic and Cerner and current healthcare information system. So we're getting to the point that you can see through where this will take and we can get the, and the human bond reestablished. that used to be there decades ago before the business of medicine derailed it. So while researching this book, what of the upcoming technologies or, or you know, ways AI will be used in the future did you find to be the most exciting or interesting? Well, I mean, all of AI, it's the paradox, right? That the counterintuitive, that technology to enhance humanity, but all the things we've been talking about, being able to take language, being able to take data at scale and um, get it interpreted in, in an extraordinary way. But the complementarity of what algorithms can do and what humans can do, it's, it's not either or, it's the, it's the synergy that makes this so powerful. So, you know, the, every way you look at it, there's just extraordinary potential. There's also been, unfortunately, you know, extraordinary hype. But as I try to dissect all this, uh, I think that we have a path now to rescue what has been the biggest problems in healthcare today. And they're not just in the U.S. I mean, I just spent the last year and a half commissioned by the U.K. government to help review and plan the future of the NHS, particularly how to use AI and genomics and digital medicine to, to see how it would affect the workforce and to make medicine more efficient. And, and as we concluded in a report that's open access, uh, the gift of time is the greatest gift we can get out of that. So what the troubles we have are there are different in the UK than here in the US because of the single payer um, and the fact that it's egalitarian and every citizen of the UK has health care. But there is the commonality of losing touch the keyboards, administrative burdens, and um, the lack of sense of care that patients have because they barely have eye contact, no less the time, no less the humanity that's vital to move forward. Well, Eric, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is what are you working on now? 
<laughs> uh, well, we, we as a institute are working a lot in AI and in genomics, especially to rev up the interpretation and accuracy and lower the cost uh, of whole genome sequencing. But we're also using it in sensors like in heart rhythm and other types of what we call time series analysis of sensors. We have a big partnership with NVIDIA that was started just um, six months ago. We also are leading a big part of the all of us, the Precision Medicine Initiative, which is a million Americans who are essentially going to be getting multi-modal data. And eventually, you know, having that supported, they will have their all, they will have all their data will be supported by algorithms. And over the years ahead, uh, they will be a, a, a great testing ground for where individualized medicine is headed. So that keeps us busy. Um, and, uh, you know, I think trying to see through the exciting path going forward and trying to ignite the activism that's going to be needed in order for us to achieve a deep form of medicine. Well, Eric, I want to thank you very, very much for your time today. I really appreciated it and uh, look forward to having you back on the show again in the future. Okay, Jeremy. Thanks a lot. Great to talk with you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.